Welcome to episode 92 of the Historic Performance Podcast, featuring Dr. Mark Russell, Reader in Performance Nutrition and Applied Exercise Physiology at Leeds Trinity University. Dr. Mark Russell is a researcher that focuses on match day strategies to enhance the performance of team sport athletes and the use of nutritional ergogenic aids on performance in team sports. His journey began after gaining a bachelor's degree in sports science at Swansea University, and after some thought, he decided to apply for the PhD program in exercise physiology at Swansea University because it was really the applied application of research to sporting scenarios which really got my interest. So the opportunity arose after my uh, undergraduate at Swansea University to continue within an area. Uh, it was around developing a new exercise simulation for use with football or soccer players from the back of that research has really led on to some of the areas which we've focused on. But all the way through my research career, it's always been developing the areas of team sports performance. One of the areas that Dr. Mark Russell had noticed had been overlooked in previous research was that of the halftime break. A number of intermittent team sports require that two consecutive periods of play, lasting between 30 and 45 minutes, are broken up with a halftime break that may vary between 10 and 20 minutes. As many of you know, typically what happens during the halftime break is that teams return to the changing room, they address equipment and injury concerns, they refuel and rehydrate, relax from the cognitive and physical demands of the first half, and receive tactical instruction and coaching feedback. So I pose a question to Dr. Mark Russell. Why had this area been overlooked in previous research? And his response? In terms of overall match day strategies, from a research perspective, I suppose it's, it's primarily the logistics involved in carrying out such studies. So typically, match days, irrespective of what sport you are talking about, match days very often preserved to be quite sacred. And very often, there's a lot of superstition involved and a lot of pattern and a lot of regulations match day itself sometimes can be one of those areas whereby people just tend to stick with with what they've always done now there will be exceptions to that uh so primarily i imagine it's it's mostly a logistical reason as to why we've not got too many papers around about specific match day or half time performance in order to bridge the gap dr russell published a review article in sports medicine titled halftime strategies to enhance second half performance and team sport players In today's episode, we discuss the findings of that review article and challenge some of the preconceived notions that we have as sports scientists and strength and conditioning coaches about optimizing second half performance. Enjoy the conversation. It is great to be back with all of you on the Historic Performance Podcast. On behalf of all of the listeners and myself, I would like to extend a warm welcome to you, Dr. Mark Russell. How are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. Thanks very much for uh, inviting me to uh, speak to you today. Dr. Russell, in 2015, you published a review article titled Halftime Strategies to Enhance Second Half Performance and Team Sport Players. While the bulk of the review looked at strategies that could optimize second half performance, it also analyzed the physiological changes that occurred during halftime which lead to a degradation of cognitive and physical output. What are some of the critical physiological changes that do occur during halftime? 
and how do they impact performance? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the um, it is primarily focusing around about issues concerning stopping exercise. So ultimately, a player is competing within the first half. There's going to be high-intensity exercise and all of the physiological responses which are associated with that. Um, if we talk about the sport of football or soccer, then movement demands, we know, even though the majority of the sport is going to be of a, a low-intensity nature and, a, and thus aerobically focused, there's also these high-intensity periods which contribute to success or the outcome of the game. And if we think about 45 minutes of soccer-specific exercise, as soon as half-time comes along, then ultimately these players are going from quite heavy exercise exertion down to relatively low intensity activities so there's a whole myriad of physiological responses which occurs as a function of that transition we can think about this from a, a number of different perspectives so the first half of exercise will raise muscle and core temperature as soon as the individuals stop exercise and they return back to the changing rooms. Then there's plenty of evidence out there suggesting that there is a, a reduction in, in core temperature and also a reduction in muscle temperature as well. So this occurs to such an extent whereby the, uh, the half-time values for some of these variables may actually be representative of, of some of the non-exercising conditions we then also got responses from a kind of a hormonal perspective whereby we're no longer having high intensity exercise stimulating catecholamines such as adrenaline and consequently then we can then have any responses which are associated with that and this particularly links into some of the research which i think we'll talk about a little bit later on in terms of carbohydrate intake so there's there's very different physiological responses to carbohydrates which are consumed within a passive state, i.e. half-time or pre-exercise, compared to when an individual is consuming carbohydrates during high-intensity intermittent exercise as well. From a implications perspective, I mean, there's a, there's a whole host of literature out there which has windowed various responses according to five or 15 minute periods and we do tend to build up this image of the first 10 to 15 minutes of the second half actually demonstrating quite different responses to the initial periods or other periods of the game again most of the literature from this focuses around uh, the sport of soccer but ultimately we can identify that there's a little bit of a, a reduction in the intensity of activity which is performed within this 15 minute periods at the start of the second half there's also some evidence suggestion that there's possibly an elevation of injury risk according to some some literature which is out there in terms of eccentric hamstring strength but also in relation to more globally the number of uh, treatments which are occurring throughout the initial period of the second half when a physio or medical staff run onto the pitch so it tends to support this observation that the initial period of the second half actually demonstrates different characteristics compared to other periods throughout a game. Dr. Russell, so there is an overview of strategies there, and I thought the best way to go about this is perhaps discuss each strategy, why it might be helpful, and uh, simple ways of implementing it. So the first one is the efficacy of heat maintenance, and uh, for that you have both passive and active heat maintenance. Um, you, you mentioned before that during halftime, uh, generally because it's, it's very passive in nature after they've been doing high intensity exercise during the first half, 
there does tend to be a literature out there saying that there's a drop in core temperature. Typically, how extensive is that drop? What are the implications of that drop? And then perhaps we can discuss the heat maintenance strategies. Yeah, definitely. So in terms of obviously the the temperature responses, as we would expect, there would be an increase in temperature towards the end of the of the first half. But then as an individual obviously stops or reduces their exercise, the intensity lowers and they return back to the changing rooms, then typically what we can identify is there there is a essentially a reduction. And if we identify certain responses or consequences to increasing body temperature, typically within a within a certain range, these tend to be beneficial. So as an individual obviously was gonna warm up prior to the start of exercise, we would expect certain responses to occur in terms of improving subsequent exercise performance. And obviously by removing some of the temperature by an individual cooling down over that 15 minute period, then we typically do tend to identify that there are some performance decrements which tend to occur over the half time period. Now, in terms of ways in which we can attenuate this, obviously this is going to be very much governed by the logistics or the situation in which we're working. I just have to identify at this moment in time in relation to some of our research, we've we've primarily looked at this from a thermoneutral environment perspective. So the responses are likely to be quite different if an individual is exercising within a very hot or humid environment. So it's just something to note from our research, which has primarily been led by Professor Liam Kilduff down at Swansea University. In terms of some of the responses occurring over the half-time period, we've identified that when individuals actually wear a heat maintenance jacket, so passive heat maintenance is ultimately providing either a jacket, a garment, or some form of artifact to actually prevent heat loss, whereas active heat maintenance strategies are performing exercise of various uh, modes to try and actively rewarm the body. Now, when passive heat maintenance is used, in some of our research we've identified that there may be up to a 1.5% reduction within core temperature that occurs over the half-time period, to such an extent that actually the half-time decline renders most of the heat which is generated during the warm-up to actually have, have disappeared and we can we can typically tend to attenuate some of that with provision of one of these jackets or a passive heat maintenance strategy so if we provide individuals wearing a garment which minimizes any sort of heat loss then we can really try and maintain temperature and there seems to be some benefit from this also from a from a physical performance we've, we've seen evidence that in repeated sprint tests there's around about again a, a one and a half percent to two percent improvement in initial sprints performed at the um, start of a simulated second half when individuals use passive heat maintenance over half time from a active heat maintenance perspective again there's there's evidence out there to suggest that if individuals engage with around about seven minutes up to seven minutes of activity then again this can be beneficial so this may be isolated activities whereby individuals are engaged in resistance exercise where individuals are engaged in a pre uh, pre-second half warm-up 
And again, fairly similar responses in terms of uh, the magnitudes of differences which will occur at the start of second half. But ultimately, we can identify that doing something, be active heat maintenance or passive heat maintenance, is actually uh, more beneficial in thermoneutral environments compared to doing nothing at all. I have a quick follow-up question regarding the passive strategy. Um, Having worked in a team sports setting, I know um, some athletes like to put heat pads on isolated areas of their body. Um, Is there any research done on that, whether or not that would also help prevent that drop in in core temperature in in comparison to the garment? Uh, As far as we're aware, there's there's not actually been any comparisons of of modes of heat maintenance that has been used in, in that specific scenario. Like you say, the player's individual preferences are are a massive factor within the adherence to some of these strategies. So ultimately, you may get some individuals that like to actually remove clothing and actually like to try and cool down. You may get individuals who are having treatment that may have one-on-one interactions with a coach that... So there's all of these logistical factors to consider. And this can be sometimes one of the reasons as to why it may be beneficial to possibly look at passive heat maintenance strategies rather than active scenarios, because ultimately there may be a a bigger disruption to some of that half-time pattern of activity or the the half-time practices, which can result of putting a, an active rewarm up prior to the start of the second half. And there is some some nice evidence out there from a, a kind of a player's perspective or a coach's perspective, looking at what are some of the barriers to some uh, active rewarm-ups and a, a perception of lack of time or unwillingness of some of the management team is actually one of the, or a couple of the main reasons cited for why teams don't actively re- rewarm up in some scenarios versus those that possibly could do. The next uh, strategy is post-activation potentiation, or uh, PAP for short. Could could you discuss a little bit about PAP and uh, what the research has said about that? Yeah, so PAP is or post-activation potentiation is is basically a it's, it's a transient or short-term improvement within muscle function, and this typically tends to follow something known as a preload stimulus or some sort of conditioning activity. And there's a, a range of evidence out there which has typically tend to suggest that there's a number of factors which affect PAP, so chief amongst which can typically include the strength of the participants, so stronger individuals tend to demonstrate a PAP response. There's other evidence out there suggesting that um, a time frame can have an effect on how effective the PAP response is. So if you was to perform a conditioning contraction, so typically it may be something like a lower body resistance exercise, or it could be something involving the upper body but ultimately some form of conditioning contraction if an individual then performs an explosive biomechanically similar activity at set time points following that action then they can demonstrate probably an initial fatigue response. So if you were to look at them performing a counter-movement jump after a lower body squat, they may experience an initial fatigue response within the first couple of minutes after the initial contraction. But then between four, eight, possibly up to 12 minutes after, there's then this short-term improvement in muscle function, which follows the initial contraction. And this 
although we've put that in the paper in relation to a proposed strategy, I'm not aware of any studies that have actually looked at it as a specific half-time strategy and this is some of the areas that we're proposing to look at in the future in terms of research if we can get the right timing of a conditioning contraction during that half time period does that then allow us to acutely improve subsequent explosive performance or or various aspects of performance within the initial stages of the second half so so pap is one of those which has typically been used in a, in a research setting, but not necessarily within a, within a half-time setting. But there is a rationale to possibly suggest that it, it could actually be beneficial. From both a active heat maintenance and a, and a PAP standpoint, it, are there any recommendations in terms of the duration of rewarm-up and the intensity of rewarm-up to possibly be able to check both of those boxes? I know you said from the PA, from the PAP perspective um not so much but maybe from the active heat yeah so again this is kind of limited by logistics so typically between between three and seven minutes of activity tends to be what's been looked at within the research whether or not that encroaches too much on some of the other practices which needs to occur throughout the half time period such as the team talks the injury um, issues and addressing any kit issues, etc., that would have to have to be factored in. But again, it, it may be a case that anything is is better than than nothing in some of these scenarios. So if you've only got two or three minutes to be able to implement a half-time active rewarm-up, then going out onto the pitch two or three minutes earlier may be then beneficial in terms of being able to to implement some of these strategies. And again, this is where it could possibly be a a factor whereby that the active rewarm-up does actually include some conditioning contractions to try and harness somewhat of a PAP response within the initial period of the second half. The caveat of that is obviously if you know that an individual may fatigue as a consequence of performing a certain action, if that was to be included within the active rewarm-up, you just need to be mindful of the fact that there may actually be a, a little bit of a lag time before the potentiated effect outweighs the fatigue effect. At the onset of the podcast, we mentioned that we would talk about carbohydrate consumption during halftime. Typically, most teams give their athletes drinks that contain a high glycemic index carb solution to aid with the replacement of endogenous glycogen stores, hydration, and maintenance of blood glucose levels. But according to your review, there are certain implications of consuming such solutions during halftime. What are those implications? Yeah, no problem. So the just as a, a precursor to this, um, this area kind of developed as if by accident. And it's it's amazing how specifically some of these things as a researcher, you, you may spend your, your time focusing on one area and then a, another finding comes along and that is essentially the, the direction which you end up going on. So this was essentially a finding from one of the, the main or the final studies within my, my PhD a few years ago. We published this initial data in around about 2012, I think it was. So essentially, if you adhere to some of the recommendations regarding team sports performance and carbohydrate consumption, typically 6 to 10% carbohydrate drinks are recommended uh, to be consumed before and during intermittent exercise. And at the time we published this, the, the recommendations were focused around periodic feeding of 50, every 15 to 20 minutes 
of volumes of, of carbohydrates of 6 to 10% solution. And the purpose of this is ultimately, as you've just alluded to in the questions, possibly to maintain hydration status, possibly to preserve um, endogenous glycogen stores, but also in terms of maintaining blood glucose concentration. And typically what we tended to find within the study that we published, and it, again, it was quite an alarming finding in the fact that at the time it contradicted pretty much everything I thought I knew as a PhD student around about carbohydrate intake during exercise, is that when these drinks, or, or as in our study, a 6% sucrose electrolyte solution was consumed every 15 minutes throughout soccer-specific exercise, blood glucose concentrations were actually maintained in the first half, which is what we would expect. But we then experienced a massive decline within blood glucose concentrations from the 60-minute time point. So we'd had our 15-minute break. There was then 10 to 15 minutes of exercise which followed. And then for pretty much throughout the full duration of the second half, because of this massive reduction in blood glucose concentrations, we actually identified that there was pretty much from a, from a glucose concentration perspective, no benefit of a carbohydrate containing drink throughout the full duration of the second half and that was one of the papers which we published in 2012 in the journal of science and medicine in sport now as a consequence of that study we've then carried out a range of other different studies and fortunately it's been something which we've replicated on each and every occasion so even though intermittent exercise has been performed either in an exercise simulation or in a, an actual match then again, typically we tend to find that after a 15-minute period of half-time whereby players are literally just sat down trying to replicate what they would actually do in the real world, then there does seem to be this massive reduction, possibly up to 40% in blood glucose concentrations. And it's also worth noting that in some individuals, the glucose concentrations that we get at this 60-minute time point are actually representative of, of clinical hyperglycemia, so fairly low values. And, and this can have possible implications in terms of cognitive function and, and possibly in terms of physical performance as well. But it's just worth noting that when studies have induced something known as rebound hyperglycemia, so they consume carbohydrates before a single bout of exercise and we get this drop in glucose around about 15 to 20 minutes into the exercise bout. When studies have induced this scenario, then using a single exercise bout, they've typically not tended to find a performance decrement. But this is mostly coming from studies which have used uh, endure, uh, sorry, time trial cycling as the mode of exercise. So that's kind of the, the background to it. Fortunately, it wasn't something which was wrong with one of our studies. It, is, it does seem to be a response which we've replicated every time we've done studies of this nature. And consumption of sports drinks within adherence to some of the recommendations, even when we only provide them at half-time and before the initial warm-up, sorry, towards the end of the initial warm-up, then again, we do tend to see this response. And that most recent paper has used more practically applicable uh, time points of feeding, has again shown this um, exercise-induced rebound glycemic response. And we've, we've recently published that within the last couple of weeks, again, in the Journal of Science and Medicine in Sport, using a 12% carbohydrate electrolyte drink i mean as you mentioned that does indeed contradict a, a lot of uh what 
even strength coaches know because as you mentioned the typical recommendation during halftime are to use these carbohydrate solutions um within their passive state um so based on the the model that you had mentioned for carbohydrate consumption during halftime what would be the recommendation yeah it's it's a really interesting question and and it some of the stuff that we have actually found does tend to contradict what some of the common uh, perceptions are. And that doesn't mean to suggest that there's not then a role for carbohydrate consumption during halftime. We're not saying that at all. We're, we're just really challenging the notion that carbohydrate consumption using specific methods is actually beneficial to blood glucose concentrations throughout the full duration of exercise. From the first half, that still sticks. For the second half, it tends to be a little bit different. So there is possibly a full PhD worth of of studies still yet to be done on this area in, in the fact that if you are bound by contracts or sponsorship to consume certain types of carbohydrate products at um, during match day, then can you change the way in which you consume them to uh, have different effects? So you could possibly still consume a high glycemic index carbohydrate, but then it may be worth looking at when during the halftime period do you actually consume that? So do you focus solely at the start of the halftime period or do you look at possibly towards the end? And the reason we talk about this is possibly to link to some of the mechanisms which are involved. So I think you uh, mentioned earlier on that the responses are indeed very different when an individual consumes carbohydrates during rest versus when they're in exercise or recovering from exercise. So it's probably just worth me elaborating on that a little bit more, and that will hopefully give a little bit more context to some of the recommendations or discussion that follows. So if we think about the body's normal response to consuming carbohydrate carbohydrate which raises blood glucose concentration so in a healthy individual who is at rest there's a whole myriad of responses which will occur but ultimately we will have an increase in blood glucose concentration that then stimulates insulin and the actions of insulin have a number of um, effects but ultimately causes an absorption or uptake of blood glucose concentrations into skeletal muscle to try and Uh, prevent any further increases in blood glucose now that's actually happening at rest if we then think of half time just on its own preceding the second half of exercise in addition to the stimulus of insulin to cause uptake of blood glucose we've then also got the onset of exercise so if we've got the second half kicking off and then players are then engaged in intermittent activity the muscle contractions and the muscle actions is then a further stimulus for glucose uptake so we then get an additive effect and then we also have to bear in mind that the half time period is not only a period of preparation before the second half it's also a period of recovery following the first half of exercise and consequently we know that the body will induce certain responses whilst in state of recovery to try and replenish energy stores and one of these can be something known as uh, glute 4 translocation so uh, a movement of certain receptors within the within the cells that try to cause an uptake of glucose so ultimately we then got another stimulus for 
glucose uptake. So we've got insulin acting, we've got exercise starting whilst insulin is high. That's a further stimulus for uptake. And we've also got the body being in a period of recovery following the first half. So all of these things added together is the reason why we think that there is a possible mechanism which is causing this massive or transient reduction within glucose concentrations at the start of the second half. And consequently, some of the recommendations, if we if we understand some of that mechanism, come off the back of that understanding. So we've looking at various ways in which we can try and prevent this reduction in glucose concentrations. So one of which may be to consume carbohydrates with period of exercise. So if you do do a, a re-warm up before the second half, can an individual consume carbohydrates then? Logically, that makes some sense to me, uh, just because of the fact that if we think it's stopping exercise, which is causing a lot of this response, can we actually put some exercise back in to try and reverse it? There is some evidence to suggest that if we change the nature of the carbohydrate which is consumed, so rather than being a, a solely high glycemic index carbohydrate, could there be opportunities to lower the glycemic index of the drinks which are consumed? Because again, there is evidence out there to suggest that when a single exercise bout is performed and carbohydrates are consumed beforehand, the glycemic index of the beverage consumed can actually have uh, an effect of reducing the prevalence of this hyperglycemic response. So we're, we're doing some work in that area at the moment. And also you can look at the overall amount of carbohydrate which is consumed so so typically we tend to find the timing the amount and the glycemic index are factors which could be affected in carbohydrate consumption dr russell the last thing that i want to talk about is the use of caffeine chewing gum and how that might be utilized during halftime in order to um, prevent some of that degradation in cognitive abilities and uh, physical abilities during the second half. Uh, I know it was mentioned within the paper that uh, caffeine chewing gum ha has now become more readily available. And um, what would be the recommendations of using caffeine chewing gum and um, how does caffeine interact with the body in ways that it, it may prevent that degradation? Yes, it's a very good question. And, and, and you are right in saying that the frequency or the prevalence of, of caffeine gum has definitely increased over the last five or so years, possibly due to such products becoming more available, but also down to the fact that, that there is now a little bit more of a research evidence base behind this. So typically in terms of caffeine consumption, um, if we talk about some of the traditional methods, such as caffeine drinks or caffeine pills, then we're probably looking at around about 45 minutes up to two hours, whereby uh, an individual, after they've consumed the caffeine, will actually then have appearance of caffeine or its metabolites within the systemic circulation. Obviously, within the context of half-time, then that's not the most productive to be at peak caffeine concentrations once the match has finished. So the rationale behind the caffeine gum is the fact that not only can we stimulate some of the effects of caffeine by stimulation of receptors and responses in the lower digestive tract, but also we can have an effect using caffeine on the upper 
parts of the digestive system. So literally, as soon as the individual starts chewing the caffeinated gum, there are certain receptors within the mouth and the buccal cavity, oropharyngeal receptors, which can be stimulated. And the rationale there is that if we have a stimulation of these receptors, then that can stimulate specific areas of the brain, which can have an effect of essentially reducing sensations of tiredness, reducing the effects of fatigue, possibly having beneficial effects in terms of, of cognitive function. So it's a lot faster. So very often some of these responses, instead of being 45 minutes to two to three hours, may actually be occurring within a matter of minutes. So anything between five to 15 minutes. And consequently, this then lends itself to being quite a nice strategy to be used during half time and we've actually got some evidence which is under review at the moment so i won't be able to speak specifically about that study but um, hopefully it'll be accepted for publication fairly shortly which basically is showing that if you provide a, a caffeinated chewing gum then it can possibly have beneficial effects in terms of subsequent intermittent sports performance so now that we've discussed all these strategies since there's a lot of fitness coaches that listen to this and strength and conditioning coaches that let's say they want to implement some of these strategies. I, if you went with them to, to the coaching staff and said, these are all the things I want to change, they'd probably look at you and be like, are you, are you freaking nuts? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, and even if you went, even if they got the coaching staff on board, then some of the players, as you mentioned, they have routines superstitions they've been doing it for a long time is there a hierarchy and and this can be based just on your opinion is there a hierarchy like if there's one thing that could be implemented that you would implement that and then what would be uh subsequent things that you would recommend great question definitely uh say that in some of my uh some of my earlier days when a little bit naive to the way in which team sports work that you could possibly have some of those ideas and think you know what i want to i want to change the world but you've got to start one one intervention at a time and it may be that they you want to have an overhaul of half-time practices, but essentially that's a, a five or so year plan away. You've got to start with smaller things and try and try and work towards that. In terms of any kind of uptake by specific teams and then what approaches, very often it's kind of around about trial and error. So what might work for one player may not work for another. We can then have a discussion around about if there are five or so ergogenic strategies which we want to put in place does everybody have to do all of them and again it's about really working with players and, and piloting and, and using possibly the pre-season or training scenarios to really see if any of the players have certain tolerances or intolerances to certain strategies would they prefer something is there a way in which we can try and incorporate this without disrupting too much what their their current practice is so in my my biggest thing to try and achieve first of all would be that inquisitive nature of the player to try and improve their performance so possibly that may come by do you try and influence the manager or the management side of things first of all and that then filters down to players so more of a top-down approach or is it then a case of talking the performance language with the player and then themselves trying to influence their own performance and working with them so there's a whole heap of strategies or a whole heap of uh, logistical barriers which will need to be considered within that scenario and we present a, 
a theoretical, and I must stress a theoretical way in which you could possibly incorporate some of the things which we've discussed today, but also other areas uh, as well. And that would then be a scenario whereby if one of those was adopted or multiple strategies were adopted, hopefully then they would be beneficial. And it's then that those practices themselves ultimately become a little bit more routine. So probably a little bit of a complicated answer uh, in terms of what you were saying. Um, There's not necessarily one key strategy which I would identify. I think it's more about having players or having coaching staff question what they're currently doing and is it optimal for um, subsequent performance. So one phrase which we're trying to push at the moment with everyone that we kind of work with is assess then address so assess what's going on and then ultimately if what you believe is going on is happening then that's great we can carry on working with that if not we can try and address some of the um through some of the interventions that we've talked about here today this is totally unrelated if someone is contemplating whether to go down the research route and obtaining their PhD, what were some of the key things that you thought about prior to applying for your PhD and what should a individual be thinking? I'd say you definitely have to have a passion for the area. So if it's just literally getting PhD after your name or the term doctor before your name that is driving you, then I'd say consider a different route or change your thinking because PhDs are ultimately a, a very very intensive period of of your life whereby you're, you're pretty much dedicating every aspect of time to this project either three years or, or, or more uh, if you carry it out on a full-time route if that's then combined with other things such as um, working part-time study supplemented with working etc and applied roles Again, there's all sorts of scenarios to consider. So really make sure that the the topic area and the area of interest is indeed the area that you are really focused upon dedicating your life towards. Another key consideration is who is going to be the supervisor and working with the supervisor that that typical lecturer student relationship is a lot more intense where when you're in your PhD studies. So again, any sort of decision would have to be based upon um, who's the the person supervising from a, a primary point of view and again that's going to have possibly an effect on uh, on swaying some of the decisions and ultimately um, having a, a love for the, for the topic area which you're focusing on such that you can develop research which contributes to a body of knowledge and, and for me that always has to link back to applied applied problems so this is where there's some very nice models especially some of the models which we're working with at Leeds Trinity University now whereby individuals can be embedded within clubs on a, on a full-time basis but then also working with us as academics to conduct a, a PhD such that some of the studies which are being carried out are actually to try and answer real world problems so we can identify that something is occurring can we put something in place to try and intervene or attenuate that? Or do we need to know a little bit more the reasons about why? And if this comes full circle and goes back to answering a problem which you face within your club's academy, your youth system, 
within your half-time scenarios. Hopefully the answers, if it's supported with a solid research design, can then be used to feed back into the teams to answer that question, which may then generate further questions for a, for a later period. So again, probably supervisor relationship, the topic of, of interest really being of interest to you, and then also having an applied an applied arm or an applied twist to the research which you carry out. If anybody wants to reach out to discuss anything that you mentioned within the podcast, what would be the best avenue to do so? So there's a number of ways in which you can, you can get in touch with me. Um, I'm on Twitter. So my Twitter handle is at Dr. Mark Russell, with the S's being the number five. Uh, I'm also available on the Leeds Trinity University website and various uh, communication methods, things such as ResearchGate. You're able to get in touch with me, so feel free to get in touch if I've uh, stimulated any any interest within the area that I'm fortunate enough to research. Fantastic. And I'll make sure to link all of that information in the show notes. Excellent. Thank you very much. Dr. Russell, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast to share some of your research interests and uh, share some of the information that was within that paper looking at halftime strategies. No problems at all. Thank you very much for having me, James. It was an absolute pleasure. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. Next time on the Historic Performance Podcast, I interview Brett Utley, assistant coach at Rio Grande Valley Football Club, the USL affiliate of the Houston Dynamo. Brett brings a unique perspective to the podcast in that he has served as both a fitness coach and sports coach at the USL level and is a large student of the game, having obtained his master's in high performance via the MBP school in Barcelona. My love for you know, playing great soccer and total total football, as they say. Um, I've always studied FC Barcelona and f- obviously fell in love with the way they played. And I knew that that in Barcelona, the essence of soccer existed. Um, and there was an opportunity where I could go study, study soccer for four months um, with MVP. And if I'm honest, it was probably the most inspiring, motivating, and educational four months um, of my life. Be on the lookout for Brett's podcast next week. You can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes or Stitcher. You can check out previous episodes on historicperformance.net. And finally, you can find us on Twitter at Historic Perform. Enjoy the rest of your week, and I'll see all of you next week.